Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 39. Today, for the first time ever, I got to hang out with an expert who has already been on this podcast. I brought her back because, well, frankly, I'm in love with her. I think that she is absolutely brilliant. And anybody that has ever heard her talk feels the same way. So I am so, so lucky to have her in our village. In fact, she is a part of our Facebook group, Seed and Sow, colon, Voices of Your Village. If you're on Facebook, you should come join our group. She is in there along with myself and a bunch of other experts who are volunteering their time to answer your tiny human questions so that you don't have to just chill in the trenches not knowing where to go. Oh, I should probably tell you who she is. I am bringing back Lori Goodrich. She is an occupational therapist and just all around brilliant woman. And every time I hang out with her, I learn more. And I have had the privilege of seeing her with tiny humans, working with her in the classroom setting, and also diving into these nerdy conversations. I had somebody reach out with a question about solids, like solid foods, and I thought a lot about who to talk to about this, but I personally have been in meetings with with Lori and watched her support parents with information about how the sensory system plays such a huge role in food, especially in this infant-toddler time. Your mouth has to kind of go through a lot in order to eat food. And I hadn't really thought about this from her perspective before. And then I was in this meeting and she just lit my world on fire per usual. And I realized I had to figure out a way to share this with the world because I go to early childhood conferences. I'm surrounded by early childhood experts pretty regularly. And this wasn't something I'd really thought about in this way or been exposed to before Lori. And I know that not everyone's filling their days with nerdy early childhood stuff. And so I'd imagine that if I hadn't heard it yet, that a lot of other folks were also in that boat. 
And so I'm super jazzed to share this conversation with you. Uh, I'm going to be honest, this was later at night because finding time in our schedules where we're both free was a bit of a challenge. And I was really tired going into this episode. And then I left the episode super on fire and jazzed and couldn't fall asleep because my brain was twisting and turning. I hope that this is as beneficial and helpful for you as it, as it was for me in figuring out how to best support tiny humans around the topic of food, around what we're feeding them and how we're feeding them and all that jazz. There's so much more to it uh, than I had originally thought about. Enjoy this one and head on over to Instagram to share your experience with feeding your tiny human solids and kind of how that process has gone for you. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with our village. My Instagram handle, handle, is that like a thing? I think that's maybe what it's called, is at seed.and.so. All right, I'll see you over on the gram. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. I brought an expert back on because I think she's absolutely phenomenal. Lori Goodrich, ROT from episode number four, is coming back this time to talk about food and the sensory system. Hey, Lori. Hey, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back to join us. Your episode is one of our most listened to episodes. It's a, it's a hot topic. That's nice to hear. I'm glad it was well-received. <laughs> yeah, so, so helpful. Awesome. So can you speak a little bit about just kind of generally what we're talking about when we say like food and the sensory system? Sure. <laughs> a lot of, before you, I would not have connected those. Oh, okay. I'm uh, happy to. So a, a little bit about me is I'm a, an occupational therapist um, and I specialize in working with individuals and thinking about sort of the sensory systems and how they impact different areas of function. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in detail as it relates to food. But one of the big functional areas um, that some people think about and other people don't is um, how we process sensory information um, has a lot of impact on what a mealtime or food experiences might look like. So when I'm talking about that, it's thinking about, it could be a very specific sensory thing is in the food as what does this food feel like? Or what does it smell like? Or what does it taste like? Um, so those are the correlations that feel pretty like common. If you, if I say that, that makes a lot of sense. There's some other things that are a little far further removed than that. Sort of that like next bubble of thinking of how a person's entire body is working. So do I understand where my body is in the chair? Can I sit upright in order to have good alignment and proper and use of my hands for eating. And then there's that sort of next bubble, which is what else is going on in the environment around me currently. So are there people talking? Are there smells that I'm noticing? Is there a lot of stimulation going on? Um, and then the, out, the bigger bubble is even 
what was my day like that might be creating um, either a positive environment that, wow, I'm hungry and really tuned into my body or I'm overwhelmed and can't really experience hunger. Um, so that's kind of how I think about um, the sensory systems generally as they relate to food um, in mealtime. That's a lot. How do you, that makes total sense when you, when you, I like the phrasing of like the bubbles and kind of phasing out. So when you're looking at tiny humans and like eating and processes, are you kind of working from the inner part of that bubble outward? Right. So I would say when we, when I, when I work with a a child or when I'm thinking about, um, it could apply to someone maybe that might be considering services or even just a friend's child that they're kind of wondering, yeah, my child's not eating something. Why do you think that is? Um, OTs, I always say, start with the why. <laughs> um, so the outer bubble is usually where people are talking to me about where their concerns are. They're, the person's not eating. Um, mm-hmm. There's a real functional issue. I guess it's not really the outer bubble. It's more where the functional concern is. They're not eating. Um, that might be interrupting mealtime for others. It's parent stress, all those kind of things. Um, and we as OTs look at a range of areas of why that might be happening. So assessment is really important to figure out what's going on. Some common things that we see that make food eating more challenging. I think if I ask a lot of the parents that I work with or people that I know whose kids are kind of picky eaters, the sensitivity piece is probably the most like obvious. Someone that's really particular about how food's prepared, oversensitivities to things like textures and those things. And that can range from anywhere to I don't like it and all to the to the more extreme, which is throwing up at the either in the idea of the food. <laughs> Mm. Um, and those are just signs that someone's central nervous system is just much more easily overwhelmed than some, than ours are. Um, that that smell is not just kind of noxious; it's completely overwhelming. And th- the idea of eating something would not be all that appealing. So individuals that have issues with that sort of sensory sensitivity piece will often self-select foods out based on things like textures, um, flavors, and smells. So a lot of bland food, maybe a lot of smooth food really needing things to be cooked a particular way or some pretty common things. And then outside of food things, you might see things like if they had those sensitivity pieces that impacted other areas of function. And this is kind of what OTs are going to do is they're going to think about what's happening during a meal and the food interaction, but also look beyond that of, oh, look, there's other sensitivities to things like sound and the clothing and those things. So we're not looking for just one symptom of an issue, but looking for patterns of what's creating sort of a challenge. That makes total sense. I was going to say, how do you narrow down the like, I feel like there are some days that I want a salad and some days that I don't want a salad. And it's for, you know, for me, it's not a sensory thing. It's that I'm not in the mood for salad. And so for the tiny humans, like, how do we, how do we narrow down whether they're saying like, oh, I don't want this because I would rather have something else right. versus, oh, I don't want this because it, there's this, it's a sensory experience I'm, I'm not prepared for. Right. It's a really good question, I think, especially with younger kids um, that are in that sort of like getting that sense of autonomy when they're younger, so that like one and a half to three Um, the kids that really are particular about food. I know from my own nephew, who's almost six, um, but when he was younger, he was very much like that. And his dad thought, does he have a sensory issue? And I said, no, because I'm looking at other patterns of how he functions and he's fine. I think part of this is he's saying saying no to the food because it's like one of the first things he could actually kind of say no to. Right. (laughs) Um, 
So I think looking at common things that come up that could be a, a sign of a sensory issue, but could also be common sort of developmental food experiences, particularly in that young age group are saying no just for the sake of saying no, which is why us doing assessments and thinking beyond just sort of the food experiences is really important because that gives us clues. Other things that are common um, are food jagging. Food jagging is I eat the same thing all the time and I stop wanting to eat it. Mm-hmm. It's actually a very normal part of development. I remember eating wax beans when I was a kid a lot and then I, st- I haven't eaten them since. <laughs> um, and those are fine if you have a typical diet. So if you have, if you eat most foods and you food jag off, jag off of a food or five foods, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, but it's when kids are starting, they have a select diet already and then like, oops, the one protein they always eat is gone. Right. That uh, makes sense. So to, I guess I, I'm, I feel like I'm not maybe being the most articulate here. Um, no, I, I think I think that, that it makes total sense. I think right. it, it's helpful for me to hear like how you narrow it down or right. what you're looking at. Right. I think when, when we have families come in here to do maybe a, an, in, an intake, so which we talk into a therapist or to do an actual evaluation, um, we ask a lot of questions during the intake and during the evaluation that are... I spend a lot of time explaining to parents why I'm asking about certain things because they're like, we're here for food. Why are you asking about how strong they are posturally on the playground or mm-hmm. what did their early development look like? But we know, um, I think anyone that works with kids understands that like these things don't develop in isolation. So we're trying to look for patterns of how, how an individual is functioning and getting like those sort of data points of, oh, there's some texture issues with food. Hmm, I'm wondering if that's he, the child's two and a half. I'm wondering if it's just related to their age. Okay, let's dig a little deeper and think about, okay, parents are saying things like diaper changing and getting dressed is really hard and they're really particular about what clothing they'll wear. Like that's starting to give us a clue that there's a little bit more of a pattern. There might be something actually off um, in that child's sensory processing. Um, to make matters more complicated, in addition to just thinking of that sensitivity piece, sensory processing is also the foundation of your motor skill development. And so for when you're thinking about the, the, what you need to be able to do to like chew food and those kind of things, that awareness of what's inside your mouth, which is, it's like when you have food pocketed or maybe you have something stuck in your teeth, you can like feel something. That idea of, can I feel things in my mouth is then a foundation for, I understand my mouth can do things like if you're, if you're chewing, if anyone's eating while we're talking, I know that happens when you're listening to podcasts, I'm (laughs) chewing, think of what your tongue and your cheek and your lips are all doing. So you have to have sensory awareness to start to develop the oral motor skills you need to break down food. Um, So if you were chewing something like that required bigger chewing, like steak or maybe a raw carrot, you have to have pretty sophisticated oral motor skills to be able to do that. So in addition to looking at does a child have sensitivities, which is often a primary barrier if someone's struggling with food, other barriers can be I don't actually have good awareness and motor function in my mouth to be able to actually break down food. And this is actually more common than for the clients that we service is relatively common that, and it's sometimes which came first, the chicken or the egg. They didn't really put a lot of stuff in their mouth as a baby because they were so sensitive and then they never developed the oral motor skills. Mm. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, It made me think about like, kind of like where, so what's our role here as adults? You know, I taught infant toddler. And so we had a kids starting solid foods at different times mm-hmm. and different solid foods and, you know, whatever the families wanted to do, we followed suit. So um, kind of how does that play into the adult role if your mouth needs to build up essentially like a skill set, some strength right. to be able to 
chew and break down and manipulate food, how, like what's your suggestion in terms of where to start with food and kind of what that progression should look like? Right. One of the, one of the, I mean, not everyone needs to come in for an evaluation to look at this. I'm certainly not suggesting that. Um, I think one of the things that I talk to families about is even thinking about how you chew food. If you're like, huh, I wonder if my child's chewing enough to eat that food. If you put it in your own mouth and think, is my, what is my tongue doing and what are my structures doing? It might give you a little insight when you watch them eat to be like, are they doing kind of the same thing? Oh yeah. I see when they put food in their mouth that their tongue is pushing it over to their teeth to chew. Um, those kind of things. But when I'm, when you're thinking about typical development, sort of, there's a couple interesting things that have been going on in sort of the the sort of early childhood sort of area. One is, I know a lot of families, they go to their pediatrician um, and these are, these are children either that I'm seeing that have potential challenges or also people that I know that have young children. And they'll go to their pediatrician and say, can you help us with the food progression? (laughs) And pediatricians know so much, they don't know that much about what the order of developmental sequence of food is. Yes. Um, so I think, um, and I wish I, I looked for this this morning, I could not find a book that had this exact thing, but there's certainly websites out there that talk about it. There's a progression of food and when we start eating different things um, that's really important to know about. And there's certainly things that get skipped and people like Gerber doesn't know what this is. There's a lot of, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of mishmash out there of like what foods are out there and sort of what purpose they serve. So purees are often to start to like ch- change um, kids off of just having milk and to get some like flavor exposure and those kind of things and start to get nutrients a different way. And then hard munchables, which could be food or non-food or, or food that kids would sort of chew on, but not for consumption. An example of a food one would be um, a, like a Slim Jim, like a little baby would be able to bite that, but they could, they could gnaw on it. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't going to give their kids a Slim Jim. So things <laughs> like those, um, like the rubber chewy tubes and those kind of things are great to chew on. And those serve absolutely no nutritional value, obviously, but they do help. They push your gag reflex back. Uh, they start to build that oral awareness um, so that when you are starting to get ready, you're getting ready to eat different types of food. Um, and that's a really important developmental step. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns, and it came in the mail, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their luxe women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin, too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out 
and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online, you can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. That makes total sense. See, these yeah. are the things that I wouldn't have thought of. Right. pre yeah. And then the other food thing that I actually get quite a few questions about this in my, in my personal life, which is melt the meltable things, which are like mm. um, the puffs. Yeah. And people are like, there's no nutritional value. I'm like, you're right. There's, there's zero. Well, if they, it is fortified, if it's, if it has any nutritional value, but the actual benefit of that is it starts getting your tongue active against the roof of your mouth. So uh-huh. babies get their tongue moving in different patterns. And that's kind of what we're going for with that. There is no nutritional value, but it does have a developmental pattern. So now we're talking about like the hard munchables or the chewies getting their jaw going and them starting to understand their mouth and now their tongue starting to move in different planes. And that's when they start to get ready to eat different types of food and things that are softer, um, like cheese or avocado and those kind of things are much easier to eat than something like a Cheerio because, um, a soft thing you can break down with your tongue. So if you had a piece of avocado and you were eating it, you could actually completely break it down without using your molars. You could just use your tongue against the roof of your mouth versus something like a Cheerio, put that in your mouth and hold it there forever. It's not going anywhere unless you chew it up. Mm-hmm. So that idea of how, how we think about what oral structures are part of different sort of food developmental pieces. I think a lot of, um, and then mixed textures, the other one that's much more sophisticated. So the foods that are like soups and things or like two textures mixed together, those are actually much harder. So that sort of thinking about like what oral development looks like is a really important part of food um, selection. And that goes for children that have, it becomes even more important when a child has a challenge but certainly typical development, um, it becomes, it's really important. Um, when I think of the, um, I know one of the questions that you were talking about was sort of the baby, what is it called? Baby led weaning. Baby led weaning. I always forget one of the words. Um, (laughs) and that idea of that is, that's like a kind of a hot topic out there, right? Of like, is this, what are the sort of the pros and the cons, right? Yeah. When I think of some of the pros, I think our our world is too safe for some kids, right? Like we're always like, put it in the sippy cup. Don't go on the swing. Don't hurt yourself. So I think in some ways it's nice to give some exposure um, that the child actually has some control over. I think that can be a really good pattern for kids that are sort of typically developing. For anyone that we has identified or potentially identified oral motor issues, um, I have had some kids have some um, some medical issues from from taking in foods they probably shouldn't have had in their mouth. So I think it's a good a good modality if your if your child is a typically developing child. If they're not, it doesn't mean no. But I think working with a like a professional that might have a good sense of you know these might be some good choices of things to give them some as opportunities, but maybe not these more sophisticated, harder things to chew at this point. So 
That makes total sense. When you were talking about the purees, mm-hmm. I have a question for you. So those pouches are like on the scene, right? <laughs> <laughs> what is like, is there benefit to tiny humans sucking out of the pouch or should it be more of a spoon fed thing if we can? Any rules there? Yeah, there's some interesting baby things um, that are designed for parent convenience. Yeah, for sure. Well, they are convenient. They're so yeah. convenient. Oh my gosh. I, I eat them sometimes when I travel as an adult. They're great. <laughs> Love it. They're great. So I'm definitely not, I know some, I know some professionals are like, they should never have sort of invented them. I wouldn't go that far. It's kind of like a lot of other things, like a lot of, um, if you think of like early babies, sort of the, I call them baby containers. That's not what they're actually called. Like the bumbo and the seats. Oh they yeah. actually aren't, they have nothing to do with development. They're literally, so you can put your child down while you like go to the bathroom and make dinner. Right. There's zero developmental benefit from them. Right. In fact, they can be not great if you overuse them. Um, I feel like the pouches are kind of the same. I I would never tell a family to never use those because, or like a sippy cup or whatever, because that's what they need to, a family needs to function, right? We have to go out of the house. It's hard enough. So it's not a never. I think unfor- sometimes I feel like they get used as a replacement of doing things like spoons. So when we were talking about that, like, what your tongue is doing um, in terms of like getting it moving in different patterns, having things like, and using your lips in different ways, having exposure to spoons and drawing food in differently is really important. So I would say as a primary way of, of, of eating, you want to use spoons and utensils and all those things. And then the pouch is being used as a, when we're on the go and on the fly. So not never, but just thinking about like that they're not designed as a primary way of taking food in. I love it. It's so helpful to know. We, you had, you had dropped that knowledge in our classroom and we just, it, I mean, even at the high chairs, we just hand them a pouch because we didn't know any better, right? right? Like it was, and just then transferred it to a bowl with a spoon, right. which, you know, then I have to sit there and feed them <laughs> or uh, at least early on. But Right. And that's such a good example on a day where like three kids are having a meltdown. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Or we got to get out of the house or I'm like, here, we're take having, the pouch. <laughs> right. We're having, we're having, we're having, we're having dinner at someone's soccer game. Like those are the moments that you're like, the pouch is totally fine. Right. Other professionals might have different opinions on that, but I, I feel like to tell a family, to me, to tell a family, like, absolutely not just feels like that's not really reasonable. It's like tell someone telling you to go to the gym every day and you're like, well, you know what? That's never going to work for me. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I am think not just, going to. <laughs> just knowing that they don't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a negative thing. They're getting some good lip closure and some sucking off of it. But I think the, the, the tongue pattern that we're trying to do, which is getting it moving in different directions um, and having the opportunity to take food in differently is not necessarily available to them using the pouch. And as we're introducing foods, how long do we cut things up super tiny, right? Like we, this definitely varied family to family in our classroom. And it was interesting to see because we, it would get to the point where we were like, oh, they could handle like bigger chunks. Right. And we tell families like, I think they can handle bigger, bigger chunks of food here. And they're like, really? Are you sure? Like there's, and I totally understand the like fear of choking. Yeah. So at what point do you start to do that? Are they cut like they're chopping it up into table food? Yeah, so like cutting up blueberries or right. strawberries, things like that. Right. I mean, 
is this is another one I wouldn't be like don't ever chop up the food but kids need opportunities to do things like bite a chunk off uh-huh. and learn how to manage larger chunks in their mouth it's not um I, I always joke that really chopped up food is like pre-digested because you don't have to really chew it that much <laughs> like partially chewed up and all you have to do is cho- chew a little bit and swallow um so if it was a child that had issues that I work with I know I had families that have pureed entire meals like we're talking like steak so wow. the kid the kid has no issues with the flavor it's that he doesn't have the motor skill to break the food down mm-hmm. which it sounds not that tasty to me but <laughs> they yeah, no, it was like their norm it was that child's norm for for kids that don't have any identified challenges i would say i mean after the age of about 1 that doesn't it's not really necessary um i do think there's like that sort of like um, I understand it that like my child's going to have a safety issue. There's going to be choking. So if that feels like the case, um, if there are certain situations that they feel like, wow, we can't really pay attention to everything they're doing, it could be just working towards, okay, so what are times that we could work on being able to bite, bite and break things down past, the, definitely past the age of one. Right. Um, to, and if they need to chop that up and they feel like that's an opportunity, they need to do that for safety reasons in certain circumstances. I think that's fine. But I think kids really need opportunities to do typical things. I had a, um, one of my friend's um, moms used to be a nanny, and one the mother used to was nervous about the child with hot dogs, which I get, right? Like yeah. the wrong, the right size for your throat in not a good way. Yeah. And she used to peel the hot dogs, which I don't know how you even do that, but the child wouldn't eat hot dogs regularly until he was like eight or nine. <laughs> so I think you want to be careful that we're not actually creating more of a, Right. It's a fine. It's a fine line. We also. I had a kid in my classroom that had sandwiches that had been cut up into little pieces, mm-hmm. and uh, we, so eventually we were like, "All right, I think she's good on the little pieces." But what we noticed was that before nap, she would not eat. She wouldn't chew a whole sandwich. She would eat them if they were in pieces, but she wouldn't take. She would just say, "No, I'm just going to sleep." Like it was too much effort. Right. Um, but after nap, if we gave her that same sandwich, she would eat it. Mm-hmm. Right. It is. I mean, think of those things when they're little as work. Right. The nice way of kind of framing that. Cool. Yeah. So what role, if any, does a pacifier have in the like oral motor? When you were talking about the chew sticks earlier, I was like, oh, does a pacifier play a role here then in like tongue placement? So things like the difference between a pacifier and a chew tube is the pacifier goes towards the back of your mouth, uh, not the pacifier, excuse me, the chewy tube goes towards, <laughs> the, go towards the back of your mouth. So it's working on uh, some of the things you were talking about earlier, but it's also the idea of like, you're not like the front of your mouth is not designed to be that active when you're, when you're eating, like when you're eating. So the chewy tube is helping to push things back. The gag reflex, just more general activity towards the jaw and the back of the tongue. And that's how we actually get food to project backwards. Uh-huh. The pacifier is getting is overactive in the front, um, so you're getting a lot more lip con- lip activation. You're stimulating the tongue in a way that you're not really looking to stimulate. It's it's fine for kids to have them to, for self soothing, but the the walking around with them all the time, you could actually create a lot of um, dental alignment issues and structural challenges. I hate to I'm not trying to scare anybody. <laughs> Doesn't yeah, mean no. definitively. Um, <laughs> But that idea of then you're promoting like I'm getting the tongue moving forward, so that can be can can not necessarily everybody, but can make oral motor development more challenging. So that food interactions is harder, can create some dental challenges. 
um, could create some speech challenges depending on sort of the how often and how right. it impacts their function. So again, those are things that I'm, I, um, I'm not, I definitely am not like a don't do it. I think if your child doesn't need it to be great to find other self, some self soothing mm-hmm. things. Um, but I think the, the primary issue, I have a client that I, that I actually just stopped seeing, but when he was nine, I mean, you could see him and be like, he clearly had a pacifier when he was little. I never, I didn't know him when he was younger. Yeah. Um, but the whole structure of his um, teeth, um, was impacted. And when we think about function, right, that could be like, there's, there's oral care things that they need, but it can also be, if you're changing the structure of the inside of your mouth, how you get your tongue to work off of your palate, your, the hard palate at the top of your mouth, that can impact, um, chewing patterns and speech for sure. It can also impact, um, if, if anyone's sitting there is just resting right now, if you take yoga, the resting spot of your tongue is up behind the front of your teeth normally. So that seal sort of at the middle of your body is actually another sort of inhibitory regulatory function that your, that your mouth serves. So if you had a really high palate as a result of having a pacifier, you could have some, it could contribute to like um, regulation challenges um, because you're not getting sort of that basic seal that you would normally get to kind of regulate. So I always think that stuff is interesting. That's like when you think about when I talk to families about certain things, you're like, that feels a little like, it feels a little bit bigger, like, whoa, I didn't even think about the fact that the mouth could impact yeah. Um, larger functions. For sure. Like For me, I've always like, I actually had a friend reach out recently and was like, Hey, can I just run some development questions about uh, like uh, at you in terms of where my tiny human is and what we should be working on? And one of the things she asked was about the pacifier. She's like, are there any negative things? And I was like, well, <laughs> there can be. And yeah. I was like, as a general rule of thumb, I would just say, if she doesn't need it, like if it's just there and she's grabbing it to walk around with, then I would say don't have it as accessible. <laughs> right. The other thing that I think you're so good at, Alyssa, is this idea of like, we want to build capacities of like different strategies and like, how do I self-soothe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think this idea of, it's not like go cold turkey and take the pacifier away if that's right. what they're used to, but how do you start to build capacities in other ways? Yeah, um, for sure. Right? Well, I know we it's consider- Sorry. We consider a pacifier a coping mechanism, and mechanisms are things that we might turn to as kids, like a lovey or something like that. But you then grow into where we want to develop coping strategies that you can take with you for life. That when you have a feeling at work when you're 25, what do you do to help your body feel calm? It's not going to be a pacifier, right? Right. So, like, that's the whole idea for us in terms of moving starting to move away from mechanisms into strategies. And it, right. it, like you said, it's not a cold turkey thing, but definitely plays a role. Right. That's an interesting point because I think sometimes we think of, um, so I haven't had a, had a client that had a pacifier regularly in a long time, but I think of a lot of, um, if you if you think about adults, right? Mm-hmm. Like chewing on pens, chewing on gum, smoking, <laughs> drinking water during, or like a camelback during a meeting, right? We actually use a lot of oral strategies as, as a way of helping us stay focused and engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the, the kids that I work with, depending on what age and sort of ability they're at, like I am teaching them ways of like, if your body needs something to stay focused, like what would those things yeah. Uh, what could those things be that are more, um, more sort of socially appropriate? So a, a child that I have, if they were really oral seeking to try to get that sort of, um, sort of proprioceptive input in your mouth, um, which is like input to your muscles and joints or doing resistive sucking is really a calming thing. I'm going to work with them to try to figure out what, what strategies would actually work that are 
are going to be beneficial for them in terms of their regulation, but not having a counter, a right. sort of a counter side of that, which would be, it's creating another sort of challenge. Right. So essentially getting that same input, just with different in means. a different way. Yeah. yeah. And also like for older, I work with, I work with younger kids, but I also work with um, young adults as well. Uh, and the idea of like, what's a socially appropriate way to do it. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. One of the things that I find fascinating is the world of high chairs. <laughs> I've learned so much from you about this and just like the input. So let's dive in. Like ideally, what are kids, how are kids eating? <laughs> how what, are kids eating? Like what's their body doing? <laughs> uh, are we talking about all ages or kids that are like ready to sit in a chair? I would say let's start with infant toddler, like building up, like how do we want them? Yes, yeah, s- sitting in a chair. Sitting to like, in a chair, yeah. yeah. Um, there's so much stuff out there. I was at Babies RS recently and was <laughs> kind of, it's kind of insane how many things are out there. Um, if we're talking about a child sitting in a chair when they're younger, and actually this will lead us into something else I wanted to talk about that we kind of, I kind of bypassed earlier. Um, we think about like what a child needs to get, what support do they need to do their best with whatever they're being asked to do? So that could be, it, for in this case, it's eating, right? And participating in a mealtime and whatever, whatever sort of um, meaning that is for a family. Um, so we want to think about what level of sort of, what level of postural control do they have, which is using like their big core muscles and what level of support do they need? So for a younger child, like the I'm going to call it like a traditional high chair has sides that kind of come in. They have a neck rest and then they have a foot rest and those are all designed. They're still developing their postural muscles and therefore they need quite a bit of external support so that they can do things like keep their body upright, which is really important for things like breath control and digestion when you're eating. Um, And then eventually when kids start self-feeding, your core is what holds your body up while you're using your hands for either picking up food with your hands or utensils. So that's when I'm thinking of when I'm looking at um, at chairs and those things. I'm thinking of does this provide enough support given this child's needs? Some signs that like maybe doesn't have enough support are the child is sitting leaning to the side. Um, they might be sitting with their neck like sort of their trunk forward and their back, their neck kind of back. That's how I sit. I shouldn't be. I'm not judging anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the idea, and then. Uh, so I think thinking about like, is this the right setup for them to, so they're kind of in general, like a general alignment of their trunk and their neck and their hips. Okay. Um, I don't know. Is that, it's, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you all the brands of high chairs sitting. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's. Those are some core things that I think about. Some things that, um, that I know as kids get older, right there, maybe they're out of their high chair um, and they're sort of maybe moving into more like, like regular chairs. I think those those principles still apply. It doesn't mean that every single kid has to have a chair with the back and all that stuff, but some of the things that I talk to families about is like if there's no footrest and they're having a hard time sitting, like having a back support and a footrest that they can have. So it's giving them contact and they don't have to work as hard to hold their body up. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. 
he likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Um, that was one thing that you had kind of, when you came into our classroom, you were like, all right, these kids, their feet are not touching the ground. So either they need a lower chair or put a book under their feet or something right. like that, that I hadn't thought of, but it makes total sense. Like if your feet are dangling, right. that is not a challenge. Right. So it's just more, it's more work. And I think at some point, like, I think people are like, oh, kids outgrow it. So it, if a child is like six and can sit in the chair and function well at the mealtime, I don't think you have to obsess over this. But if they're having a hard time, um, the idea of can they sit upright? Are they working really hard? Um, do they feel grounded during a meal? Um, those are important things to be thinking about. Um, one of my favorite things that's out there, and I'm not, I've, I've no like affiliation with them. I just like the company. It's called Trip Trap Chair. Yeah, that's what I was gonna mention. Yeah, and those are great. They're a couple hundred bucks, so they're not cheap. But right. they have an adjustable um, seat and footrest, so when kids are older, you can adjust it so that they can still have that like correct position. Because if you're sitting in an adult chair, even if you have the footrest, you're probably way below the table height. Right. So that it's a nice adjustment. So I think they're a couple hundred bucks. They come in different finishes um, and they last up until kids can fit into an adult chair there. We, we have them here. I always joke that we're durability testers. <laughs> they work awesome. Um, so those are things If that feels like a feasible thing. Great. And if not, it's very kind of trying to do a makeshift, like um, the actual alignment that your body is supposed to be at as you, as you get older is if you're sitting at a in a chair with, with sort of with your hips back is your ankles, your knees, and your hips are supposed to be at 90 degrees. This mm -hmm. isn't like for somebody to stay in this position, but is it like, is this the right size? Feet are flat on the ground, and then the table is about two inches above your elbow. So if a child is sitting in an adult-sized chair, they're going to have to like raise their arms up a lot higher. So I think thinking right. about all those kind of variables, are, they're just good things to think about. That makes sense. Uh, and this kind of brings us a little bit into the other question I get asked a lot about sort of the intervention and evaluation part of what I do is... Um, sort of what's the difference between OT and speech? 
Do <laughs> um, <laughs> you say they're thought, very closely linked? <laughs> yeah. And why, why would I see an OT and not a speech therapist for this? So, <laughs> um, some of the things that I, um, and this is, this is, I think I've know many gifted OTs. I know many gifted speech therapists. So these are just some of the things that roll around in my mind. And I know when we're, when we get a referral here, we're always thinking about um, like who's the right, right match. So I'm going to talk about a couple like core things that we look at that I think um, might be helpful when you're, you're thinking about, well, I'm talking about how to differentiate, but also other things that we, that I think about when I'm thinking about kids eating and um, maybe why they're either why they're doing well or why they're having the challenge. And part of it is what we were just talking about with the high chairs, um, that OTs have training in things like oral function, but they also get trained in how to address and treat um, postural issues and a lot of that big body sensory processing that we were just talking about um, earlier. Um, so that, that, that's kind of what makes us a little different than speech therapists is a lot of, occasionally speech therapists have good postural knowledge, so it's not nobody, but that idea of like, if there's an underpinning, like significant posture issue, or if there is um, the sensory processing piece that we were talking about, um, we were talking about that sort of motor skill piece. OTs are specifically trained to to evaluate and treat those areas. So if a child has um, postural issues and maybe they have some, um, that lack of awareness of where their body is in space, um, that could be impacting an, a meal, where's my body to sit in the chair? It could be impacting something like the playground, like I don't know how to move my body or do anything anyone else is doing. <laughs> so that's how that, it can kind of play out different ways. So when, I, when we have a, a client come here that has feeding-based challenges, often we're brainstorming together of like, what's this person's profile? What's the best, what do we think is the best recommendation for them based on if they have just more oral motor issues, it could be OT or speech. But if they have like significant sensory issues and a lot of these big body postural issues, that's often, that's often when we think like, hmm, I wonder if OT at least would be the best starting point for them because we have, we have different trainings in those, in those areas. So yeah, I think that's hugely helpful. I often don't know. I would call you into my classroom and I'd be like, uh, Lord, will you take a look at this person? And then I'm having the SLP come. Right. <laughs> because I'm not yeah. sure what the root is. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's no, there's no, um, there's no harm in doing that. I feel like people come with like slightly different knowledge bases. If you talk to hundred OTs and hundred speech therapists that have similar backgrounds, they're going to, you kind of pick up nuances based on where your tra exact training is at. Um, where your mentor, where your mentoring's been from, what kind of clients you've serviced. I've had the, I've had the, um, I feel very lucky that I've been able to work with some teenagers and young adults um, that have restrictive eating. So they've been living with it their entire life and they can talk there completely cognitively together. So they can talk to me about what their experiences was and give me feedback about the intervention that we're doing. <laughs> and I really feel like I've, I really evolved as a clinician working with that population. So um, they improved their sense, their sensory processing and eating. And I got to learn um, right. what it's actually like to live with some of the challenges that they've been. That they've That's been interesting. Yeah. Interesting perspective. Um, well, and for me, like in the classroom, I had, I've had a couple kids who have received, who, who had speech delays or language delays, but the root of their delay was a sensory processing right. challenge. Right. So they ended up qualifying for OT right. that once the OT was moving and grooving and we started to address those challenges, speech naturally, naturally came along. Right. So it's very interesting how intertwined they are though. Right. Yeah. I, I always joke that I, I was actually just telling a client's dad this tonight. I said, I, I need a shirt that says, I don't know if this is OT, but it's like, <laughs> fill in the blank. 
<laughs> I feel like we're, we're a very different type of healthcare profession because um, we get trained like through the lifespan in psycho and sort of psychosocial and, and motor and just general development. We have a pretty broad training um, when we're in school. And then when you come out of school, you kind of continue to specialize in whatever sort of field you're working in. Yeah. Um, well, and I've even sent sleep clients over and I'm like, eh, will you check and see, is this an OT right. thing or is, are we working with something else here? Right. Yeah. Right. No, no, it's, 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 sometimes it is, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out what it is. Um, but I think it is exciting to be working with other professionals that are thinking like, hmm, I wonder what this is and where is it coming from? Um, and what information we need to get to figure out where it's coming from. Yeah. I, I've learned so much from you. Um, well, one of the things that I, it definitely is intertwined, and this is the last question that I got from a parent was, how can food affect behavior? Which I think is interesting because yeah. there are so right. many different things at play here. <laughs> right. I, I, I think it's even good for us to think as adults how food affects our behavior, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like if yeah. you have too much sugar or you're kind of backed up, right? Right. Like all yeah. those food is a really interesting because it shows up in different ways. And as adults, we have the ability to communicate or even maybe think we understand it, but it's still complicated. Then you have like a two-year-old that has no capacity to necessarily tell you or even younger what's going on. Right. Um, I went to, I went to a, um, a lecture or excuse me, a workshop out in Minnesota um, in February and we were talking about, it was, this woman was very articulate about certain things. And I was like, oh, I like that. So I'm going to use her like idea of like, <laughs> when you think of food, think about not only it's like the being around food, but once it's in you, it's sort of like from <laughs> smell in your mouth until it gets, it leaves your system. So there's a lot of things that can go right and wrong along the way. Oh um, yeah. Wow. That, I, I like that as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, it's a little bit like, yeah, hopefully that's okay with everybody. I talk about, <laughs> don't go into any more detail than that. But I, this idea of if you're thinking about um, the food experience for somebody, kind of thinking about what are, what am I seeing and when am I seeing it and what is that giving me a clue about? But I know, um, so if you have, if you're a restrictive eater, if some of the behaviors you might see around even the idea of food could be avoidance, tantrums, right? A lot of like family mm-hmm. dynamic challenges, but when the food actually goes in, so let's say a child, child's willing to eat, how that could affect behavior. Things like a lot, there's, I actually see a gut specialist myself, this idea of like, what's causing inflammation. Yeah. Right? I'm trying to get her on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Bridget <laughs> Carroll. She's amazing. She's amazing. I feel lucky to know her as well. But this idea of if a child is constipated or they don't, they can't clear things or my stomach feels funny after I eat that. I mean, it's possible that an older child could tell you, but I think this idea of things can go awry. It doesn't feel right in my mouth. I have reflux, right? My stomach's mm-hmm. not breaking down food yeah. uh, and how that shows up with kids as behavior. And oh my gosh, it couldn't be more different from kid to kid. Right. right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, I don't want to eat. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, I'm having sleep issues. Sometimes it's like my arousal level is all over the map. Food, I'm I'm putting air quotes around this, food symptoms really could be anything. So I think this is when it it becomes important for us to play detective. And if if I had a client or a child that I was seeing that was having symptoms that I didn't quite understand, um, this idea of starting to look at the gut health person with a gut health, um, the gut health component and trying to understand are there other things. And we've had, um, I've had a couple of clients that have had some like, I mean, super high levels of bacteria, (laughs) 
um, and bacterial overgrowth in their intestine, like things that you're like, I, they have, they have, some of them have autism. Some of them are completely high functioning kids. This idea of they don't really understand what they're experiencing. And we just need to kind of dig, dig in and see if we can figure out what's creating some of the, I'm going to call it the symptoms that we're seeing and the behaviors that we're seeing. So yeah, I think no, it's I like is, is any, any symptom, any behavior could come out. Yeah. Well, and it's that detective work, right? Like with right. tiny, like infants, well, one of the biggest, like most common diagnoses I've seen is a dairy allergy, but it's usually yeah. like you're seeing them like aggressively spit up or throw up or whatever after they eat. This is pretty obvious. Right. But if it's something else or it's a dye or it's a gluten thing, whatever it could be, like- right it could come out in so many different ways. It really can. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting to then go into detective mode. I mean, I've done this with you before with a kiddo where we were like, what is the root of this? Like she right. wouldn't eat and she wouldn't eat even if she hadn't eaten all day long. Like, right. and there were different textures. There were different kinds of food. We went through so many different things to figure out. And the, then we were like, all right, let's check with a gut health specialist because we we don't know. We're, we're fresh out over on our end. <laughs> right. I feel, yeah, that's something that I feel like we're, um, finding a dietitian. um, someone that does functional nutrition is what you're looking for. You're not looking for nutrition. That's like, try these different foods, <laughs> right? It's right. like they do testing to figure out like what different bacteria levels are and how you're breaking down foods and food enzy- uh, stomach enzymes and those kind of things. Um, I think that sometimes can be a missing link. Sometimes when we see kids, you're like, oh, I can treat the mouth part and a lot of the other stuff. But if that's not changing what they're doing, um, I'll often, I'll often be thinking like, I think I either need to, I need to start thinking outside my toolbox and that might include talking to another professional. I will say a lot of, um, things like kids being on like reflex meds and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I always, I, the families that I work with, I always encourage to think of things like reflex and constipation and those things are symptoms of something else. Right. So you want to be pretty careful about not just treating the symptom. So like being on reflex meds for five years. Right, um, right. Because that's well, not, so common in right. tiny humans. Yes, it's super common. Actually, I, the dietitian that I see was doing a talk with the naturopath she works with, and they're, they're talking about a couple of things that they're like people don't realize, like that you're they're taking a medicine that's designed to take for two weeks for eight years, and they show right. up and they're like, "Oh my gosh, like that's insane." Right. Well, and with infants too, it's it, it's I have seen a lot of it in sleep consulting where parents will come and I kind of like your intake questionnaire where people are probably like, lady, I'm here to talk about sleep. I'm asking them like, tell me what their birth experience was and all these other things <laughs> that go into sleep. And one of the things that I ask is, is your child on any medications or anything? And so commonly I hear about reflux meds and I want to know why, right. <laughs> right? Then I go into detective mode, but it's, it's so, so common and it's specifically in my infants. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating piece. And I think the professionals that you're looking for are people that are asking, where is that coming from? Not just how to mask the symptoms. Right. No, uh, yeah, I, I can't, I can't say that strongly enough. I feel like that, that, and that I will say I've had some GI doctors that I've worked with and I'm like, mm, why are they still on this med? Like, can we do a little testing to figure out why they still have that symptom? 
So well, I, think, I think that's something, this is, that's your OT training. And right. this is why we work because that's also how my brain works is like, find the actual why, because we right. can put a bandaid on things right all the time. I don't want to, I don't want to teach kids to walk. I want them to naturally learn to walk. And if right. they're not, I want to figure out why. Same with talking, same with so many things. And uh, we, we can, we can treat yeah. the symptoms often. <laughs> right. And eating is a super, I, 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 I'm not able to quote the exact number, but in terms of muscles used, nerve used, organs used, it's like the, it's like the most intense thing that you do. Um, oh, that makes sense. And we, and if I think of meal times, like oftentimes meal times are times where people are ha- chatting and hanging out, and right. there's there's a lot of stimulation. You know, you might go to a restaurant, like all these things that could be playing into that sensory experience. That right. beyond the food, right? Yeah. Well, thank you, Lori. I could hang out and chat with you about all things tiny human forever. But thank you for coming back and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us again. I'm happy to. I hope I hope I gave some good information and I answered people's questions. Yeah, absolutely. You checked off all the questions. So if folks have not tuned into episode four, which then they should they should immediately go do that, where can people connect with you or learn more about just like sensory information? Are there like resources you recommend or books on feeding or anything like that? There's some books. There's some books that I actually really like. One is called Food Chaining and the other one is called Just Take a Bite. Food Chaining is a book based on the principles of how do I introduce foods that are sort of um, similar to other foods that a child might eat as a way of making them safe and connected. So it's like the child eats veggie sticks, like the the cracker thing, not an actual yep. vegetable. What those those come in different colors. They they're, they're that, that long skinny shape. What food is kind of like that? So like cutting up peppers or cutting up jicama to be like the same shape. It's like that I, that idea. Yeah, very cool. Um, so I really like that book. Um, and the other one that I really like is it's called Just Take a Bite. That is just kind of ideas on thinking about how to support kids. Um, I think they're. I, I use some of the food chaining principles in my own treatment, but I'm using it together with different types of intervention. But I think for a child that you're trying to just think of how do I, in any child I'm trying to introduce food, it's a really, it's a really good technique. Um, so both of those books have some really good information. And if you're interested in learning about sensory processing, my clinic's website, OTA, the Kumar Center, has some really great information. Um, and then we have a nonprofit called the Spiral Foundation that has lots of good trainings, including what I'm doing with a colleague in a few weeks called the Focus Program, which is all about a systematic way to um, address eating and mealtime challenges um, as, as an occupational therapist. So Very awesome. any interested people, and I, if you're welcome to post my email address if anyone wants to be in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we'll link to all those things, the books included, yeah. in the blog post. Lori, thanks so much. You're the bomb. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Alyssa. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook search seed and sow colon voices of your village and dive into that facebook group we cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans if you're digging this podcast head on over to apple Podcasts, scroll down click those stars and leave a review it really fills my heart to hear from all of you Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning. 
where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.